Yeah, we're, as I think most of you know, we are exploring this uh, unfolding of the Noble Eightfold Path. And over the last few weeks, we've been exploring the three ethical factors that are <coughs> right or wise action, speech, and now tonight, livelihood. And so last time I was here, we went into wise action in some detail, remembering that it's about <coughs> refraining from killing living beings, refraining from stealing or taking what's not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct. Thank you. And so some of you might be wondering, well, that covers pretty much all of it. Why do we need a whole extra path factor just for livelihood? And it's partly, well, it's true that wise livelihood is grounded in the same commitment to non-harming as wise action is. I think one reason the Buddha singled it out for extra attention is that the things that we do every day over time tend to have more impact. So there's a cumulative effect in the activities that we engage in day after day. So just to say up front though that this term livelihood in this context is not just about making money it includes how we live our lives more generally. So whether we're in paid work, whether we're retired, perhaps we're a student or a volunteer, maybe we're a caregiver, stay-at-home parent, all of those are included in as aspects of livelihood. And because most of us spend most of our time engaged in these different aspects of livelihood, if we're able to bring the teachings of wise view and wise intention and everything to livelihood, then that powerfully increases our opportunities to practice. So just to get an immediate sense of how broad this path factor is, I'll start with Greg Kramer. As you know, we've been working through his book, A Whole Life Path. And right at the start of the chapter on right livelihood, he says, right livelihood... In this moment, how am I using the requisites of food, shelter, clothing, and medicine? So those are the four traditional things that monastics uh, made use of. And in, for lay people, we can ask the same. What's my relationship to food, to housing, to clothing, to medication, medicine? How about transportation and communication? How is my ecological footprint in this moment? Do my current professional activities reflect my values? What is the moral provenance of this money that I'm earning? What's the impact of how I'm spending it? Is the practice of giving present in what I'm doing, saying, thinking now? So that pretty much expands to cover every aspect of our lives. And there are big questions, so we might come back to some of those later on. But just to point out that because this factor of livelihood en encompasses all aspects of how we spend our time and our energy every day, as I said, it builds up a cumulative impact on we ourselves and on society more broadly. 
And one of my teachers, Gil Fronsville, points out that in general, the things we do repeatedly have much greater consequence than the things we do only one or a few times. And the effects ripple further out into our society and also deeper into our own hearts. So those repeated actions have an imprint. And I think we can understand the truth of this. I'm guessing, probably, let my check this, every one of us here at some point in our lives have probably worked in a job that wasn't in alignment with our deeper values or was ethically questionable in some way. Has anybody not had that experience at some point in their lives? Maybe it's just me. But I've done things like working, you know, when I was a student, working in a bar, which is now not something I would choose to do. And even back then, before I was involved in Dharma, I saw firsthand the effects of intoxicants, the harmful effects of intoxicants. And they, even though I wasn't drinking, the negative atmosphere being in that week after week, night after night, eventually I quit you know, for my own mental well-being. And I wasn't even involved in Dharma at that point. So the foundation for assessing whether something is wise, livelihood or not, is basically whether it causes harm. And traditionally, in terms of the discourses, there were five specific types of business or trade to be avoided. So not engaging in business in weapons, business in human beings, business in meat, business in intoxicants, and business in poison. So we can hear that list and think, well, you know, those are obviously businesses that cause harm on a gross level, but they're coming from the context of Indian society 2,600 years ago. So as far as I know, none of us here are involved in arms dealing or slave trading or butchery, as far as I know, selling alcohol, possibly. As I said, I did that myself <coughs> as a student. But if we think more broadly, even in terms of poison, many of the forms of media, many forms of entertainment are mental poisons, mental intoxicants. And if we think about the advertising industry, because it's grounded in, you could say, cultivating a sense of lack and inadequacy and discontent, we could understand that as being a form of not right livelihood. But it's more than just about avoiding certain trades or occupations. We want to also look at why we're doing what we're doing. So we could be involved in a very outwardly beneficial trade or business or non-profit, but doing it from an underlying motivation of greed or hatred or delusion. So it's not as simple as just saying, oh, those things are off the list, and if I'm not dealing in slavery, I'm fine. We always want to be looking at that underlying motivation. So again, Greg Kramer says that right livelihood points to something broad, to whatever sustains life. And he says, because livelihood touches 
the ubiquitous sensitive nerves of comfort and survival, it is primal. With the practice of right livelihood, we face the everyday roots of stress. There is greed. When is what I have enough? There is hatred. What stands in the way of my comfort? Who threatens my ability to live as I choose to? And there is delusion. Are my choices genuinely harmless? Am I living generously in responsibility and responsibly within the local and global human systems? So this ties into our exploration of wise action a couple of weeks ago, looking at our ecological footprint. He says, am I living generously in responsibility, responsibly within the local and global human systems? And then he goes on to say there's also bountiful giving as families, friends and communities support each other to meet their needs. Both the hurting and the helping are powerfully amplified by the hive-like intensity of collective and global focus on acquisition and survival. Both broad and deep, right livelihood is a path factor with heft, with weight. So I appreciate him pointing to the beneficial, the collective positive aspect of wise livelihood. So when he talked about bountiful giving, as families, friends and communities, we support each other to meet our needs. I immediately thought of my own recent experience. So as many of you know, I moved into a new apartment a couple of weeks ago. And because I haven't had my own place for 21 years, I don't own much stuff. So you may have got that notice that went around where I just said, you know, if you want to declutter and you happen to have extra can openers and tea towels and so on that you could send my way, I'd be happy to take that. Well, I was totally overwhelmed by the response because I got so many (laughs) items of household equipment. I was really, I've been blown away by the generosity that uh, so many of you have shown here. And this is exactly the aspect of wise livelihood that Greg's pointing to. That generosity of sharing resources, you know, it's cultivating the spirit of dana, and it's also reducing waste. Now what's the point of every one of us having two or three or four can openers, and yet somehow they accumulate, right? So that's just a, a simple but powerful example from my own life. So coming back to this traditional definition of right livelihood, we want to involve making a living in ways that harm others, but also to avoid any kind of dishonesty in the way we support ourselves. So we need to pay attention to the way we engage in our employment or our business, not just the type of business itself. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says that right livelihood can be summarized as the Buddha teaching that wealth should be gained in accordance with certain standards. It should be acquired only by legal means, not illegally. It should be acquired peacefully, without coercion or violence. One should acquire it honestly, not by trickery or by deceit. And one should acquire it in ways that don't entail harm and suffering for others or ourselves. 
And I think it's worth highlighting in all of this that the Buddha didn't advocate poverty as a virtue. He was very aware of the suffering that comes when we don't have enough resources or financial or material um, to be able to take care of our basic needs. So he had no issue with people acquiring wealth, so long as it was done in ways that didn't cause harm, and as long as that wealth was used wisely and skillfully and where appropriate was shared. And so he talks about householders just knowing their own income expenses and staying within their means. Very practical, simple teachings based on the middle way. Not living extravagantly, but also not living miserly, stingily. And again, just to acknowledge that these days we live in a society, in a social system that's very different from the time of the Buddha. So obviously we live in a capitalist society. And so many of these teachings are really going against the grain, going against the stream of capitalism. And many of the values in the Buddha's teachings, such as generosity and restraint and relinquishment and kindness and compassion, not the values of mainstream capitalist society. So inevitably, as we try to kind of steer our lives more in this direction, we come into conflict. Does that resonate for people? Yes. It's not easy to be in this way. So Gil Fronstall invited us, when we're looking at right livelihood in the context of a capitalist society, to explore two aspects. What are we producing and what are we consuming? And he says the primary activities we engage in to sustain our life are what constitute livelihood. These can be grouped into two categories, what we produce, what we consume. So production refers to what we create or engage in that provides us with financial and material support. And consumption pertains to what we buy and use in order to sustain our life and our lifestyle. So again, we can consider what we're creating or engaging in. Does it, is it in alignment with our deepest values or not? So we can start to look at what we spend our time doing, how we spend that time, who we do it with. And it can be uncomfortable because it brings us, it ties into our basic survival. And sometimes the ethics of the company that we work with or the behavior of our colleagues, the things we're asked to do might not be in alignment with our deeper aspirations and it creates suffering. And at least in my own experience in those times when I have been in jobs or circumstances that were out of alignment, I found it to be a sort of chronic, energy-sapping, pervasive, subtle but chronic form of not well-being, basically. And as I started to try and step out of what was considered the norm by most of the people around me, I was surprised, actually, how much pressure there was just to maintain the status quo. 
And I used to think that peer group pressure was something that ended when you left high school <laughs> until I started you know, doing other stuff. For example, way back in 2000, I stopped being an architect so I could go and manage the retreat center in the Blue Mountains in Australia. So I went from earning a professional salary and everything that went with that to living on a small weekly stipend of $100 a week. And so suddenly I was dependent on people to help me, provide me with winter clothes or take me to the supermarket and so forth. And when my friends and family and people who weren't Dharma people heard what I was doing, their responses were generally not that encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) And one person said, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but you're no spring chicken, so what are you going to do about your retirement? I was 36 at that point. (laughs) And another person said, but what if you need a root canal? I just had a root canal and it cost me $3,000. Then what will you do? And so, (laughs) no, it was a bit confronting until I realized that in a way people were projecting their own anxiety onto me. And eventually I learned to just see it as that and to some extent have compassion. But at first it was sort of a a bit undermining. So just in sharing that example, I'm just sharing it in terms of that peer group pressure. I'm not saying that wise livelihood means everyone should give up their jobs and live in a retreat center. It's just showing the challenges that come when we might decide not to drink alcohol on a Friday night in the after-work drinks, for example. Numerous things that might go on in a normal workplace or in normal livelihood that from this perspective are not so in alignment with wise livelihood. So coming back to the producing aspect, Gil asks, what are the work or the activities that you engage in that provide you with financial and material support? If you're employed, what do you produce? If you're a homemaker, what are you making? If you're retired with investments, in what have you invested? If you're a student, are your studies directing you towards being able to do something that has meaning in the world? And what is your relationship to what you produce? What attitudes do you have towards this work? Does it inspire you? If so, is it meaningful? How? Does it help you become a better person or benefit others? Are there aspects of this that you might be overlooking? What values do you express through the work you do? And what values do you wish you better expressed at work? So we can come back to some of those questions in a minute. Just before we go there, I'd like to touch into the consuming side, the consumption side. And this is where we consider what we consume, use, buy, spend our time doing in order to sustain our lifestyle. And again, there's a whole series of questions that might be a little (coughs) uncomfortable when we really start looking (coughs) deeply at them. So Gil asks, what motivates the choices that that you make and what you consume? how you're affected by what you consume, what values are expressed in these choices. 
What values do you wish were more a part of those choices? And does what you consume make you a better person? Does it benefit yourself or others in any way? And in asking those questions, I notice that Gill's making a distinction between our basic needs and our lifestyle, in quotation marks. Because most of us here live in a relatively affluent society. I think most of us are able to do more than just meet our absolute basic survival needs. And so, even though if we ourselves are not affluent, we're still bombarded every day by messages that are designed to push us into wanting more and more stuff. And it can take a surprising amount of effort to resist all of that messaging. It's not surprising that we might get caught in consumerism at times because advertising industries spend billions, maybe trillions of dollars working out the psychology, the hooks that are going to get us to do what we want, what they want, sorry. So I may have talked about this uh, in a previous talk, but there's a, a documentary series called The Century of the Self. Have any mm -hmm. of you seen that? Mm -hmm. no. It's fascinating. It's available for free on YouTube. It's a BBC documentary about um, describing how until relatively recently, people didn't have an individual sense of self that needed to be different from everybody else's. It was in the age before mass marketing, before public relations, before advertising of any kind. So at the start of the last century, people didn't feel the need to be individuals. They didn't need to stand out from the crowd. And this was reflected in the way they spent their money. So mostly they bought things on an as-needs basis. So for example, they bought a pair of shoes they wore them for 8, 10, 12 years, and when they wore up, they bought the same pair of shoes, but just new, and then repeated it. But in the early 20th century, a nephew of Sigmund Freud called Edward Bernays started to use his uncle's ideas about the unconscious to find ways to manipulate people's behavior. <laughs> And he's credited with almost single-handedly starting the public relations and marketing industries. And he did it by deliberately using the influential people of his day, like film stars and aristocrats, to tell people, particularly women, that they should be expressing themselves more, that they should have more of a sense of individuality, and all of this is in the service of selling more scarves and shoes and handbags and even cigarettes. Women didn't smoke in that era. And the tobacco industry went to him and said, how can we get women to smoke? And based on his understanding of Freud, he realized that for women, cigarettes at that time were seen as penis substitutes. So women didn't have anything to do with them. So he decided he was going to find a way of making them, breaking that taboo. So he got all these 1920s starlets and invited them to a big cocktail party. <coughs> At some point they brought out cocktail cigarettes and started smoking. And this was published in all the women's magazines of the day, with the daring young women breaking, and suddenly it was fashionable to smoke. 
and ever since then whole generations of women have been hooked on smoking thanks to this guy's manipulation so I find it fascinating to think that it was an era where you didn't have to relentlessly be someone special and stand up from the crowd and so on and these days it's even more rampant with social media and particularly young people there's just an epidemic of anxiety and eating disorders and self-harm behaviors and depression and so on mm. because of that media influence painful so when we look back at our own livelihood then we can think what are we producing what are we consuming what are we contributing in terms of broader society so pretty vast topic to explore so I'd like to leave some time now just to see here any questions or reflections for any of you how you might be engaging with this in the context of your own lives okay so thank you for your attention thank you.